I don't know where you're at right now, but I know emotionally and spiritually that that is cold water for a thirsty soul. Maybe you walked in today and you feel some sort of shame. Uh, Maybe you even embody that sort of idea that if you walked into a place like this, the walls might sort of crash down on you. But we don't come in here because of our own righteousness. We don't approach the throne of glory. We don't come to Jesus because we have cleaned ourselves up. We come to him because he has cleaned us up. And now we pray to the Father in that name. I love the psalm that we read a moment ago, Psalm 123. I want you to think about it. If it helps, close your eyes. As you think of me, as you think of, or as you hear me read the song, what do you think of God? Again, regardless of where you're coming from, when you hear this, what do you think of? To you I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. We're about to enter into his presence in prayer. Think about that. We're lifting up our eyes to the one who is enthroned in heaven. What does it say? It says, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. That's what we're asking for this morning. We're not asking that he honor us because we're awesome. We're asking him to have mercy on us. And so in the name of Jesus, we call out to the the Lord of heaven and we say, God, have mercy on us, not because of us, but because of Jesus. I hope that's your prayer. And if that is, would would you pray with me now to that good God in the name of Jesus? Father, we adore you. We recognize that we are unworthy to even speak your name certainly unworthy to claim your name and identify ourselves by it. And yet we do because of what Jesus has done for us, because of your great love for us, that while we were still sinners, you had mercy on us. Jesus, you loved your enemy. You loved strangers You loved strangers to the point of making them your brothers, and now you love the brothers, Father. God, we know that Jesus did not love money. He did not love prestige. He set all those things to the side so that he could love his enemy and so that his enemy could become his brother. We praise you for that. And God, we pray that we would do that too, that we would emulate that exact condescension of our savior, our older brother, that we would love strangers. Father, that we would love people that don't look like us, don't talk like this, even don't even pray like us. God, help us to love them with mercy. Help us to love them with kindness. God, help us to love ourselves less, to love the foreigner more. And God has We love them for who they really are, people made in your image. We know that that kindness, it's not the reason we love, but we know that that kindness will lead to repentance. That's what you did with us. Your kindness broke our hearts. Your mercy, your love changed us. And God, we pray that you would help us to do that too. That we would truly love those who are unlike us, and that they would receive the grace of God through that hospitality just as we have done. And God, would you protect us from the love of money, the love of silver, the love of honor, the love of power. Father, it is a virus more dangerous than COVID. 
And it threatens to destroy your church. It threatens to destroy our families. It threatens to destroy and thwart the mission that you've called this local church to. So God, we confess that to you. We confess that it's infected us. God, we pray that you'd give us wisdom to spot it in our lives. That we with desiring of mercy would come to you, not run from you when we see it, but that we'd run to you and that you would apply the antidote. That you would preach the gospel again to us. That no, we're not worthy, but Jesus is. And he has made us worthy. And he has promised to make us holy. God, this is our hope. This is our prayer. We selfishly think of what we need this morning in regard to these things. But we don't leave it there. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters that are meeting all around this city. God, we pray for the brothers and sisters in this county. Father, we lift them up to you. Father, this morning we think of St. Mark's Lutheran. God, we pray that they would truly love the stranger. God, would you give them the power to love the brothers? And God, would you give them the power, would you give them the wisdom to run from the love of money. God, we pray that as your word is open, we trust it is this morning there in that place, that those hearts, either far or close, would be drawn in closer and nearer, that their eyes would firmly be fixed on Jesus. And God, that's our prayer for these two churches on this block here in Hagerstown, and it's our prayer for our brothers and sisters literally on the other side of this globe. God, we pray that you'd be with our missionary brothers and sisters. You know their names. God, would you help them to love the brothers too? Would you help them to love the stranger? God, would you help them to be content with such things as they have? Would you help them to be content with the relationships that they have, knowing that you are their satisfaction, you are their security? You are what gives them significance. Would they rest in that this morning in a greater degree to a greater measure than what they did this morning when they woke up? Father, these are our prayers. These are our needs and we bring them to you. We don't bring them to you in our name because we deserve them. We bring them to you now asking according to your word in the name of Jesus with great faith that you've heard everything that we've prayed and that you will indeed answer them. Jesus, we love you. We pray that you're glorified. Amen. I want to invite you to have a seat. As you are having a seat, I want to invite you to turn also to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, while uh, the, uh, the big kids are turning there, uh, the younger kids, ages uh, three to five, Blue Station, you're going to be heading over this way. Gray Station, six years old to fifth grade this way. If this is your first time here this morning, uh, you're welcome to go and register your kids right now. Uh, there'll be somebody back if you'll follow the herd of, of children, of the stray cats that are heading that way. Follow that group and they'll get you checked in. Uh, oh, thank you. You can keep, okay. My hair must be out of place. We're going to be turning in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Today we begin chapter 13. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screen. There's also a hard black Bible right in front of you, more than likely, unless it got displaced. Uh, but just look around, grab one of those, 
And if you do use that one, we're going to be on page 1,197, looking at the big 13 and the six verses that follow underneath of that 13. As you're turning there, I I want you to just think of some things that go better together. And I'll just say the first one, and let's see if we're on the same page. Maybe you can say the, the second one. The first one is peas. What goes good with peas? Nothing. Well, if you're from Mississippi uh, or Alabama, peas and carrots. And you could even say that with a southern draw and it, it sounds better. There we go. How about popcorn and a movie? There we go. Even, even the Polish know. Peas and carrots, popcorns and movie, popcorn and movies. How about marshmallows? What goes well with marshmallows? Graham cracker, nothing. Okay, we're not on the same page. So let's get serious. More seriously then. Here's something that I think really goes well together. Blue crabs and Old Bay. Am I right? The altar is open. More than blue crabs and Old Bay, seriously, is theology and practice. Believing the right thing and then doing the right thing. And allowing the knowing the right thing to touch and inform and to drive doing the right thing. Uh, One way to think of those two terms, theology and praxeology, would be to say, where does Sunday meet Monday? Where does this space spill over into the workplace. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the first 12 chapters of Hebrews and all of the theology that we've mined out of this incredible text and how that affects us today in our daily lives. We've asked the question for a long time, what does it look like to look unto Jesus? What does it look like, we sang it this morning, to fix our eyes upon Jesus as we, in the 21st century, in Western Maryland, obey God? What does it look like to do those things? On a very high level, we want to know. And on a specific level, it'd be good to know. And so here we come to chapter 13. We no longer need to ask the question, the preacher has got to the application of his sermon that we've taken so long to get to. You've you've hung in there and now we're gonna see what change will happen in our lives as we place confidence in Jesus. What effect will it have on the social sphere of our lives as we interact with our brother and sister, as we interact with our employer and and fellow uh, employees? Our neighbors, what will it look like, even with our spouses? Well, let's look at the word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verses one through six. This is what the scriptures say. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, Remember them, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in high honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. 
Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word together. Would you, would you in your hearts ask God to bless his sufficient, authoritative word in your life now? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We adore you. We have gratitude for what you have done for us. Chiefly here this morning, you've given us your word to put light on our path. And we want to know what it looks like in our lives, what you think it looks like in our lives to really look unto Jesus. Would we see it this morning? Jesus, we ask this again, desperately in your name. Amen. If you want that to be true, I want you to say amen. 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 The main idea this morning that I think rises straight to the top is this. It'll be on the screen. You can write it down or jot it down or uh, write it down or just think about it. Living by faith means trusting in the Lord's promise of security, significance, and satisfaction. Living by faith means trusting in the Lord's promise of security, significance, and satisfaction. This morning, if we are to live by faith and we really believe that what God has promised us, the security, significance, and satisfaction, it will spill over and radically transform a few sectors of our lives, individually and even collectively. And those three sectors that are not uh, in my mind, uh, but definitely on the mind of the author and the, the Holy Spirit who's inspired this text for us is the checkbook, the bedroom, and the dinner table. The checkbook, the bedroom, and the dinner table. We're going to look first at the checkbook. I know all of you are getting a little bit nervous. Let's, let's see what does the scriptures have to say. What do the scriptures have to say about our checkbooks? Well, we're not going to start in verse 1. We're going to jump straight down to verse 5. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You'll notice here there is a set of commands. There's a set of instructions here. There's a positive one and there's a negative one. There's a don't do this, you need to do this. And the first thing that they're not to do, that they are to stay away from, is to keep their life free from the love of money. They're to avoid To keep your life free, it would be to avoid it. It's not, hey, it's not necessarily a good idea. It's, this is incredibly dangerous. You should avoid it. You should keep your life absolutely free from it. If you're taking notes, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It's so good. It lines up so perfectly with this passage, with this verse. It says, for the love of money, the exact same Greek word, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving for love of money that some have wandered away from the faith and some have pierced themselves with many pangs. That's a frightening, frightening passage. There are some who had the same sort of emotional experience that you did this morning. At some point in their life, they've had that, but then they walked away from it. And what was it that drew them away from the fellowship of the brothers and sisters here and the joy of the Lord? What was it that drew them away? It was the love of money. 
Through that portal, many have walked and they have pierced themselves through. It's this idea that they have been lured aside. They've been lured to a trap. And there, the predator has launched an arrow straight through their liver, straight through their heart. Death is certain, all because of the love of money. There's an incredible, incredible danger here. That's the negative command associated with the checkbook. We are to look out for the love of money. Now, you might say, well, I don't have very much money, and so I don't have very much love for money, and I'm per- perfectly safe. I'm not going to get shot through the heart with a, uh, some sort of an arrow. And that's not true. That's not true. The checkbook is a euphemism. It stands for how we view money, how we interact with money, whether we want it, whether we, what we, our confidence is in it, whether we have lots or little, we can still be drawn away and have ourselves pierced through with many pangs. And so we've got to watch out for our own hearts. We've got to watch out for our own lives and our own families and our own churches that we not get caught up and even drawn away and pierced through with this love of money. I wrote this word down and I thought I was going to try to pronounce it for you, but I'm not even going to try it. I'm just going to give you the slang word for this particular sort of fungus. It's called the zombie ant fungus. That sounds like maybe seventh grade humor for little boys, but it's a true thing. How does this sort of fungus work? Well, it's a parasitic fungus that primarily targets ants, although it affects all sorts of insects. You could look this up in the future and let it serve as a warning for you. Uh, Typically, this sort of fungus grows in the rainforests around the world. Here's how it works. The, the, The fungus grows and it releases spores by the billions on a regular basis, just all the time releasing these microscopic spores. And these spores happen to land every once in a while on an ant. And as they land on the ant, they pierce through the exoskeleton of the ant and they begin to multiply and spread through the body of this ant on the inside to the point where their mind is literally taken over as toxins are released in there. The ant doesn't just die and fall over as it's affected by this fungus. No, a few things begin to take place in the mind of this ant. One, they feel the need to get as high as they can. And so they begin to climb the trees as high as they can. And they begin to have this feeling of an insatiable appetite and they can't get enough food and so they isolate themselves from their colony. They go to the the highest point that they can reach and they begin to eat as much as they can. And what takes place in that moment as they're devouring insatiable amounts of food, their mandibles begin to be locked. And here they are attached to the thing that they're eating, unable to let go. And at this point, what takes place? Well, does the fungus give itself up and let the ant go free? No. The ant has been pierced through with many pangs. The ant's jaws will never be released. As a matter of fact, the the fungus will continue to expand throughout the body of that ant that it will actually turn into a small piece of fungus unrecognizable as an ant any longer. And then the process continues all over again as Billions of spores are released from that small ant, infecting many others around. This is very much a, a parable that we can see in nature of what the love of money does for us. 
And when we are infected by it, it draws us away. It changes our minds. It changes our appetites. And eventually it leads to death and the infection of many, many others. And so there's a warning here. And it's repeated even in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. It would be a great verse to think about and maybe even to memorize. It says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. And connected with Sheol and Abaddon, death and hell essentially, never being satisfied, these places are the eyes of man, also never satisfied. And so it's not this morning, be careful that you're not infected with this crazy fungus. The, the, the reality is we've all been affected or infected by this fungus, this love of money. And what should we do? Well, we should be looking for the antidote. There's a negative call that we are to avoid the love of money, but there's a positive call, and that call is for us to be content. It says there in verse 5, and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. To be content is to be satisfied. To be content is to consider the state of your own life and to say, I have enough. I have enough money. I have enough possessions. I have food and raiment, the scripture says, food and clothing, and then I've found out that I can be content with that. The apostle Paul, speaking in Philippians, speaks of this exact same thing. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, 12, and 13, I reference this oftentimes in personal counseling and even in sermons, this idea that uh, this verse is not about dunking basketballs or winning championships. This verse, literally, the, the context here is the apostle is saying, I've learned how to live my life without having anything. Literally, I've gone hungry. I've been without friends. I, I've been without food. I've been without clothes. I've been without safety. I've been without significance. I've been without satisfaction, and in that moment, somehow, I have found out that I can be content with nothing. And on the other side, he says, and there's been times in my life where I've had everything. I've had an abundance. And even in those moments, I was still content. And we know that the reality is that when we have little, we just need a little more. And when we have a lot, it'd still be nice to just have a little more. And the Apostle Paul says, I've been in both of those situations, and I've learned how to be completely content. Whether this or that, the apostle is saying, nothing can separate me from contentedness. He says, I find all my desires for safety. I find all my desires for satisfaction and all my desires for significance in Jesus. And really, that's what we all want deep down. Not necessarily to be satisfied in Jesus, but each of us wants safety. Each of us want to know that we're safe, and that's why we often do what we do. Whether it come to relationships, whether it come to money, whether it come to the greater uh, interaction that you have in society, it's motivated by safety. And it's motivated by satisfaction. What, did you, what took place yesterday in your life? Maybe you're off on Saturday and you had the opportunity to do whatever you want. And you wanted to be satisfied. And so what did you do? This is your one day that you get. What did you do? 
right? You have a desire to be satisfied, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be satisfied. And even this, and this is hard for many of us to get, but there's nothing wrong with us even wanting to feel significant. And we looked at that last week. The scriptures tell us, Christians, that we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the earth, that he chose us in his love and he predestined us in his grace to do amazing things, to even bear his name. That's, that's significance. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. And yet when it comes to the checkbook, our desire for safety says, we need more in order to be safe. Maybe you're here this morning and your checkbook is in the negative. And you say, I need more to be safe. It's interesting how connected a lack of finances is with anxiety that we face. It's so incredibly corollary. And we say when we have zero money or when we owe money that we just need more to feel safe. And, and then on those days that we have more and our checkbook is in the good and we say we just need a little more. And then we get that, you know, one month living expenses. Maybe you hit the six month living expenses saved up. And what do you say? What does your heart tell you in that moment? If I could just have a little more. And so regardless of where you're at, the desire for safety and finances is not a bad one. But notice it will never be satisfied regardless of how much you have. When it comes to comforts and pleasures that money can buy, our heart always says more. Yesterday, I opened a bag of beef jerky. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. <laughs> opened that bag and thought, I'll sit here in my chair next to my fire and eat my bag of beef jerky. And the little ones that the Lord has blessed me with, one of them comes up and says, Dad, can I have a piece of jerky? Sure, here's a piece. Before that one's gone, before it's even really in her mouth, can I have another one? And then she goes over to her mother and asks, Mom, can I have one as well? Who, while that one's hidden in her hand, she gets another one. Then she comes back to me with a piece of jerky in each hand and says, I just want a little more. And we like to laugh at four-year-olds, but isn't our hearts, aren't they just the same? Well, I just need one more dress, one more pair of shoes, one more tool, one more this, one more that, whatever it is. Our hearts are never satisfied when it comes to comforts and pleasure. We just need one more bite, one more look. It's always something more. The heart, like hell, is never satisfied, the scriptures say. And so we need to doubt our hearts. It's not wrong to want to be satisfied. It's not wrong to want pleasure and comfort in this life. And yet, know this, that you'll never be satisfied in those areas. Not with the things of this world, that is. What about significance? Again, nothing wrong with wanting to be significant. I hope that in godly, humble ways, I am a significant person to my wife and to my children and to the church that I am one of the pastors at. I hope in some small, humble, God-honoring way that I am significant, and I think that I am, and yet it's never enough, is it? To be acknowledged in small ways here and there, it's never enough for our hearts. We just need a little bit more. We just need one more person to pay us a compliment. We just need one more person to wish us well and thank us for our involvement in their life. We just need one more like or one more reshare on social media. We just need a little more. And when it comes to significance, it's interesting 
how evil our hearts really can be because when it comes to significance and when it comes to our checkbooks and the things that our checkbooks allow us to buy, we say, I just need a little bit more, not very much, I just need a little bit more than them. I just need a little more than my neighbor. I, I, I just need a little bit more than my coworkers. You see, we could be given so much And yet if we see the next person beside us getting a little bit more than us, we're no longer satisfied. We don't want enough. Enough is only enough when it is more than the person next to us. We want to be more significant, more safe, more satisfied. Each of us with these desires in our hearts for safety and satisfaction and significance can, if we're not careful, let these things go unchecked, especially in the realm of our finances. And when they are unchecked, they lead us astray. Astray from what? How are we to be content? We're, we're not to be pierced through. We're not to follow after the love of money, and we are to be content with what we have. Does that mean that what if we have nothing? Are we just to sit here and to say, I'm content. I'm, I'm not really hungry. Wasting away. Are we to be content in that way? No, it's not saying be content with nothing. It says be content with such things as you have. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the first century Hebrews, these group of Christians, this church that says, hey, Jesus is our king. We're following after him. And no matter what comes, we're content with what we have. And then what happens? Well, they begin to lose things. Their houses, you remember, we've talked about this a lot. Their houses are being plundered. Their possessions are being stolen. The reputation is being soiled. Significance is in the can. And they become the, the neighborhood dog that everybody there wants to kick. And the preacher still says, hey, you may have lost this, and you may have lost that, and you may be on the, on the verge of losing these things as well, but you still have something, and I want to call you to be content. What did these Christians have? These Christians had the Lord. They had the Lord. And that's what Paul has. Sitting in a Philippian jail, he's saying, I I can be content here. I can be content. Why? Because the Lord is with me. That's exactly what's happening in the second part of verse 5. Look at it. Look at verse 5. How can we be content? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is something that God has said to us. He says, I'll never leave you, Christian. Your money may leave you, I'll never leave you. Your friends may leave you, I'll never leave you. Your family may leave you, I'll never leave you. Your church may fail you and leave you, I'll never leave you, never. And so then what is the response that the preacher calls all of us to? He says, so this is what we should say. Because this is true, because we have a possession in Jesus, we can be content in that. Here's how we're content. We say this, the Lord is my helper. This is a declaration. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The reality is the Lord is our helper. What does that give way to? What does that affect in our emotions? It affects a lack of fear. And why? What's the substantiation? Because nobody can do anything to me. If God's with me, I'm not going to fear because nobody can touch me. And that's what Paul's saying. There he is in that prison. He's not been received. He's been rejected and abused. He's cast to the side, forgotten in a sense, in great pain, hungry, cold, 
wounded, bleeding, in need of medicine, and what is he saying? You know, I got a long list of things that I wouldn't mind having right now, but you know what? I have the Lord with me, and I'm, I'm content. I'm content. This verse, you'll notice it's indented, that second part there, the, the bulk of verse 6, and it's really a reference, an Old Testament reference. It's something that we've seen before. It's something that Moses is told. The Lord says to Moses in Deuteronomy 31, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the enemy, for it is the Lord, it's Yahweh, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Oh, man. Oh, man. There they are in the wilderness. They're hungry. They have so many needs. And now they've got an enemy and and God says, don't fear. Do not be in dread of them. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I would never do that. Where could you go? What could you accomplish? How could you treat your finances differently if you really believed that? If you truly believed that? Verse 7, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in sight of all of Israel, be strong and courageous, Joshua, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. Verse 8, it is the Lord Yahweh who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. There's Moses, there's Joshua, they're in the, in the wilderness. So marked, uh, this, this journey of wilderness wandering is marked with hangry people surrounded by their enemies. And yet, Moses, having met with God, comes to Joshua in the sight of all people and he says, we don't have any food, but we got Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And he says, we don't have an army, but we have the Lord of hosts. We have the God of angel armies and he's with us now. I think of this quote by C.S. Lewis, I think also on the screen for you this morning. This will be helpful for you to write down and to think about. This is a great conversation to have around the dinner table today, maybe with your neighbors, maybe with your kids, somebody in your life group. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. What? What? He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. How would your life be different? How would your checkbook be viewed and handled differently? And, and the finances, the way that you view money and resources and the tools at your disposal, how would you treat them differently if you really believe that was true? We won't look at Psalm 118, but I think, again, that will be a great passage for you to, to think of later. We're gonna, I have Psalm 118, verses 8 or 5 to nine. What a great passage. You could look at that later. What did Moses and the people want when God told them that he would be with them? Well, they wanted safety. They wanted security. Surely they wanted significance. And what did they have? Well, they had the Lord. And, and in that way, all of their needs are being met. And they have no need for really anything else because he's got them. Do you remember the promises that God gave to these wilderness travelers? Do you remember it? He says, I'll be with you. The one holy God will dwell with you. He says, the Lord God, right? 
There's lots of people that claim that they have a God, but you have the one God. You have Yahweh. You have the one that spoke everything into existence, the one that delivered you from Egypt and now is providing for you in the wilderness. He's saying, that's pretty significant. They're the children of Israel. They're the Hebrews. They're the people of Yahweh. That's pretty significant. He goes on to say, though, I'll I'll give you the land. You're going into the land. I'm going to give you this land. Well, what does the land have? Some of us think, well, that's that's just more yard to mow. I don't want a lot of land. Well, for the people living in this century here, they're thinking the land, well, this land has fortified cities. This land has a place where I could be safe. This place, this place has a land I could give to my children and my children's children, and they'll be safe. They'll be secure, and that's what I want. I want security, and God's promising to give those things. That's safety. And past that, what does he say? Well, he says it flows with milk and honey. Milk and honey. Some of us are like, man, I don't really like milk and honey. That's gross. If you think about it, in, in, in this day and age, milk, a land that flows with milk and honey is basically saying you have everything you'll need, comfort and pleasure. They are one and the same with this land. And God's promising in that moment satisfaction, significant safety, satisfaction. But what happens you guys remember, that this, is, this isn't Sunday school, but you, you, you've got the children of Israel, they're, they're kind of sprung out of prison, right? They do the wilderness wandering for 40 years, and uh, basically the whole generation that leaves Egypt is, dies there in the wilderness one by one. God supplied their needs, but of, of old age, they died. And then God says, okay, now it's time. I'm gonna take uh, and fulfill the promise that I gave to your fathers. We're gonna go into the land right now. We're going right now. And they cross over the Jordan River, and what's the first battle they come to? The first one where God says, I'm going with you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the milk and honey. It's going to be incredible. This is going to be your place forever. Incredibly significant. They go in. They defeat Jericho. Everything goes exactly to plan. They don't literally. Jehovah Jireh and the, and the Lord of hosts does all of the work for them. And then what does Achan go and do? Do you remember Achan? Achan goes and... He's got these desires for significance and for security and for satisfaction, pleasure. And what does he do? While he's obeying the Lord, serving as a soldier there in the army, he sees some things that God has said, I'm going to be your provider and I want you to obey me. I want you to trust me. I don't want you to touch these things. I don't want you to touch the silver. I don't want you to touch the gold. It's all going to burn up. I I want you to trust me. What does Achan do? He takes some of those things for himself. When it came to his checkbook, he, he, he really didn't trust in God. And he pierced himself through with many pangs, didn't he? As a matter of fact, he pierced many others through with many pangs. That love of money literally means love of silver. And it's ironic. Aside from being disobedient, God is, or from, from disobedience, uh, Achan was saying to God, you're not really enough for me. Not only am I going to disobey you, but I want you to know something. I need more than what you're promising. I need more than what you are promising to give me. I just want to ask you, this is the first section. This is the first, it's, and, and in full transparency, this is going to take the longest because we're unpacking the, the antidote. We're unpacking what God commands us to do instead of loving money, but to be content. How are we to do that? Because the Lord is with us. It's, it's taking more time, but what would it look like in your life if you fully trusted Jesus with your finances? 
What would it look like if you fully trusted him? If you were truly content in what he has promised and what he even now gives? How would your life look different? And some of you are here and you're saying, well, I'm here, I'm ready to give Jesus all my finances. And by finances, you really just mean debt. You say, God, I'll give that to you. Oh, I'll I'll give you my debt. And, And I want you to know we can submit our debt to the Lord and that's great. But God this morning is not saying, hey, just give me your debt and keep your checkbook. He's saying, hey, I I, I want all of these things. I I want you to submit all of these things to me. What would it look like? Well, I think think it might look like you saying, Jesus, in my need, I'm going to trust you now. I'm not going to do things that are shady. I'm not going to be involved in, in, in dishonest business deals. I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. I'm not going to be unfair with my renters. I'm not going to rack up a bunch of debt and buying things that I truly don't need. I'm not going to hold back my sacrificial, generous tithe to you and to the work that you're doing through my local church and through international missions. To really fully trust in Jesus is to say, surely I won't be afraid and but I also won't be a miser. I'm gonna submit all of it to God. As an illustration of this checkbook truly being given over to God, I wanna give you a story of a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. And that's a really interesting name and I won't say much more about her other than she came from a clock-making family and she was involved in the rescuing of many, many Jews during the time of the Holocaust. But when she was a young girl, her father was a great man of faith, and he was also a watchmaker himself. And there came a point in their lives where this watchmaker, Casper, he needed uh, some money. And he knelt there at his dining room table with his family, his children, and they together prayed that God would meet their needs. And they begged God that he would allow them to sell a watch. And so lo and behold, a man shows up there a few days later, not long after they had begun to pray that God would meet their needs. And here's this man, he walks in and he says, "Uh, Mr. Tenboom, I'd like to buy a watch. And he buys a a pretty decent watch, a a fairly expensive watch. And as they're conversing, the man has already purchased the watch. And he says, hey, uh, I just want you to know, like uh, this other guy down the street here, he sold me a broken watch. And that's why I'm here today. I'll never do business with that man again. He, he, he stole from me, he, he, he's a terrible businessman and a terrible watchmaker. And Mr. Ten Boom says, well, let me, let me look at the watch. And so he looks at the watch and he realizes very, very quickly with his trained eye that the thing that's actually wrong with that watch is so easy to fix and it wasn't that big of a deal. And, and so for just a, a few minutes of Mr. Ten Boom's time, he is able to fix that watch, put it back together and hand it back over. And at that moment requests that the watch that he had just sold is given back. The exchange would be undone, and here's young Corey watching. She's literally watching God meet their needs. The answer to their prayer is right before them. Her heart is so excited. Her faith in God increased, and she's like, oh, my goodness. And then her dad says, no, I won't charge you for that repair. That man is a good man. He's an honest man, and I'll take that watch back. Here's your money. And here this young girl is soaring with faith and now she's crushed and dashed again dad do you know what you've just done this 
customer leaves and there's Corey speaking with the father, the family together and she's confused. Dad, why would you let that happen? And she says, we will not allow our needs to be met through dishonesty. The Lord will meet our needs. He will provide. Just a few days later, what happens? Well, you can imagine I would be telling you this story not to discourage but to encourage you to believe that God is Jehovah Jireh. Lo and behold, another man comes in, and what does he do? He buys the most expensive watch, a totally different man, buying a totally different watch, the most expensive watch that they even had there. And through that sale that they made on that day, not only were their immediate needs met, but Corey was even allowed to go to watchmaker school in the coming years through that one sale. They believed in that moment That father taught that daughter an important lesson that having God, honoring him, and trusting him was more important than riches. He's promised to make the poorest content. He's promised to make the neediest satisfied and to never let the righteous beg for bed bed, or bed. That's interesting. That might have been a Freudian slip. The author is answering our question in transition. What does it look like to look at Jesus? And it's saying, Jesus, with my little checkbook, with my debt, with my big checkbook, I'm surrendering all these things to you. I'm not afraid. I know I'm safe. I'm satisfied with the little that I have, the little that I need, and I don't need to be significant by buying all these other things. I'm trusting you for all those things. This is your money. I want you to use it. And that's what it looks like to look unto Jesus, to really believe that they're satisfied. But there's another way in this text that we can look at and see, okay, what does it look like to really look unto Jesus? Well, it has to do with the bedroom. It has to do with the bedroom. It's interesting, throughout the New Testament, we often see the command to abstain from adultery and fornication being right up there next to Uh, being dishonest in dealings and stealing. Well, why? Why are those things together? Why is greed often associated with sexual immorality? Well, one, one theory is that they're listed together in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number seven says don't commit adultery, and commandment number eight says don't steal. Well, maybe that's one reason why they're listed together. Either way, they're both uh, a manifestation, adultery or sexual immorality and greed and thievery. All of these things really are manifestations of a selfishness, a self-gratification that really is gripping or binding the hearts of those who act in those ways. And so let's move from the checkbook to the bedroom. Look at verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marriage is almost as old as time itself. And at one time it was held in high regard in a biblical sense, but today not so much. And many of you may be thinking, yes, it's because of the sexual revolution. Yes, it's because of the the agenda of the LGBTQ plus community. And while that's partially true, we've, uh, we've really given up on the biblical ethic of marriage many, many, many years ago. Even today, in an effort to be received and accepted, or not today, but 70 years ago, and even before that, we sort of gave up on this idea. We abandoned this idea that the man is the head of the home. 
and that the woman, the wife, should submit. We don't like that. Our, our culture hates that. Now, even Christians today, me in my heart, I want to downplay this idea that God says, no, husbands, you're the head of the home. And woman, wife, you should submit to your husband. We, we don't like that. And we've exchanged it for a lesser one and one a little bit more palatable. Uh, well, we co-make decisions. We work together and, and uh, you know, nobody's in charge here. We just kind of partner it up and, and get things figured out. And while there's some good in that and there's even some of that in this biblical explanation, the reality is the man is the spiritual, physical, financial leader in the home. And the woman, the wife should indeed submit to that. And we've rejected that. And it didn't just happen yesterday. As a matter of fact, the, we've given up on that idea, and I think uh, in that way we have detached uh, biblical marriage from the way we practice marriage, and we did it long ago, and it's opened up the doors long, long ago for what we've just now seen take place. We've opened the doors, we've removed the guards. Marriage can be anything you want it to be, and it all started by even the church acquiescing to culture's demands decades and decades ago. And lest you think I'm only uh, highlighting this idea that the woman should submit to the man, the, the scripture doesn't end there. The scripture goes on to say, no, 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 it's not just man is the head, man's the king, and he eats the turkey leg and the grapes and he gets fanned and everybody serves him, everything's about him. No, it's actually the exact opposite. The Bible clearly says, woman, wife, you should submit to your husband. And, and what should the man do? Well, the man should serve his wife by dying dying to his own desires. It's so difficult for many wives to submit to their husbands as the head because the husband has not died to himself. And instead of serving the Lord and thereby serving his wife, he uses marriage to serve himself. And these, these two ideas of Husbands dying to their own desires and wives submitting to their loving, Jesus-smelling husbands. We've rejected that. And instead, we've kind of come up with this idea that for many of us, marriage is an undesirable burden that really should be, as put, off, should be put off as long as possible. Uh, the, the, the age of, of what day that, or what, what age people get married is getting older and older and older. And I don't know that there's necessarily something wrong with that, but I do think it, it indicates that marriage isn't seen as this honorable thing, as this good thing. The scriptures say whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. And when we find good things, we're eager to take possession of them. And so I think it's interesting that marriage has been viewed as undesirable by many young people. It's also viewed as undesirable by many people who have been married. For any length of time, they've come to the point in their lives where they say, this is enough. I'll move on. And in that way, marriage is not held in high regard. There's another way that marriage is not held in high regard, and it's so endemic in our churches even. It's this idea that sex is dirty and shameful. Even the, the fact that I would just mention that from this holy desk, for some of us might be, well, evidence that we do not hold marriage in the same sort of regard as the scriptures tell us to. Sex is not a dirty thing. It's not a shameful thing. It's not an afterthought of God. It is something that God has given to his people as a gift. I know there's a place to enjoy that, and there's a purpose for it, and it certainly is not shameful. There's another view 
that I think is unbiblical of marriage today, and that's that holiness at a higher level really requires celibacy. Maybe we go wrong when we think of the Apostle Paul's commands when, or instructions and even encouragement where he says, hey, if it's possible, you should consider, has God called you to a celibate life? You would be able to do more for God in the ministry if you didn't have a wife and kids. But he says, nevertheless, if God's not given that to you as a gift, then be married and enjoy marriage and honor God with your marriage. And yet, I think we've gone off the rails sometimes. And maybe we even think, maybe there's some here today that would think that if I were not married, I could honor God more. And this passage here says, no, marriage is a wonderful thing. And we shouldn't wish to be out of it. We shouldn't necessarily wish to avoid it in some thought that we will become more holy as we do. That's unbiblical. But there's another side of dishonoring marriage. You consider the greater culture, the, the greater culture says that monogamy has really been replaced with polyamory. Instead of faithfulness to one spouse, it is enjoyment and pleasure with many. It's not polygamy, it's polyamory. Yes, have one legal spouse, but have many evil, unholy sexual encounters. That's one way that we have dishonored marriage. Our culture has. What's more than that? Fornication of all kinds, including pornography and adultery, have just eaten our marriages up. And we've been called to positively hold marriage in high regard, and we've been called negatively to avoid immoral and adulterous behavior. And if you really are to think through, does the promise that God gives us have anything to do with his command for us to honor marriage and avoid sexual immorality? Is there any connection? Well, I think that there is. I I think that the way that we treat our marriage or our view of marriage, the way that we handle our bedrooms, I think it has a very, very close connection with our desire to be satisfied, our desire to be safe and secure, and our desire to be significant. Certainly it does. And so what would it look like in your life if God truly was given trust and faith, all of your confidence, all of your desire for satisfaction and for safety and even for significance in a sexual realm, we're all submitted to him, the one who is near, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. What would your life look like? Would it be any different? What is it that leads us to dishonor our marriages and to defile the marriage bed? Is it not our desire for satisfaction, never being satisfied? Or our desire for safety, going out of the bounds of marriage so that we can emotionally and potentially even financially and physically feel safe in the arms of someone who is not our spouse? Or maybe just significance. What a wicked reality, revealing the depravity and the depths of depravity in our hearts. As Lewis talks about, the many men are led to adultery not for the sake of satisfaction, but really just in significance. To in some way 
demonstrate their significance over others, their dominance over others. Again, I ask you, what would it look like if you trusted Jesus with your bedroom? What would it look like? The scriptures talk so much of it, but our attitude, our motivation, our practices, what would it look like? And remember, bedroom really is another euphemism. It's really just the private parts of your life, past your sexuality, even your gender. Do we submit these things to God as well? Absolutely. But I fear I won't be safe. I won't be satisfied. I don't think I'll be significant. And the scriptures say, look to Jesus for all of those things. Look for each of them. I love the Reformation Study Bible. It's a fantastic study Bible. In reference to this passage here, it says, the antidote to immorality is not an aesthetic self-denial, but a proper appreciation of the honor God has bestowed on the marriage relationship. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that if you really want to be moral, if you want to avoid immorality, it's not just rubber band, white knuckling, holding on, not giving in, but it's believing that the way that God has called you to act and respond in a sexual manner and your life, even with your gender, is much better, more satisfying, far safer, and leading to greater significance than you can even ask or dream. That's what it's saying. And so the third and final sphere of our lives, not the checkbook, not the bedroom, but the dinner table. The dinner table. And it has a set of positive and negative commands too. They're not as easily seen. I'll point them out as, as, as best I can. But before I do, notice this, that the dinner table, again, is a euphemism for the home. It's a euphemism for your, for your, for your life, for your calendar. Aside from the marriage bed, though, the, the dining room table is probably the most intimate place in your home. And, and the marriage bed is, is, is only for a husband and a wife, but the dining room table is for brothers and for strangers. To open oneself, the dining room table is a picture where we open our lives up to strangers and to brothers in Christ. Look what it says in verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison and those who have been mistreated. Well, there's, again, a negative and a positive. I love what it says here. Let brotherly love continue. It's saying, hey, church, you for a while have been operating in brotherly love. You really have been kind to each other. You've been caring for each other. Let that continue. That's a positive. Keep doing that. And then it says, but don't avoid showing hospitality to strangers. What happens whenever we think there's a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of of security, safety, and even significance. We circle the wagons, we close the gates, and we tighten up. And what the apostle is saying here is like, hey, you've done a really good job when, when difficulties came. You've, 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 you've done a good job, for the most part, of letting brotherly love continue. But what's happened is you, you might have neglected to show hospitality to strangers. When you didn't really have enough, you thought to feed your own family, you, you sent the foreigner away. And he's saying, hey, don't do that. Continue to let brotherly love really mark you as a people 
but don't neglect showing hospitality to strangers, right? What would cause love of brothers, love of sisters, which really is a, is a Christian phrase here, what would cause that to stop? Well, in this context, it would be soiled reputation. Soiled reputation. Well, the picture, again, is we've got brothers and sisters in this church that have been arrested. Their property has been seized. Why? Because they're Christians. And so what happens? They're thrown into jail. And in that moment, the Christians that are out of jail say, if we are seen affiliating with him, then we'll be the next to lose what we have. I think of that night that Jesus was arrested. Do you remember that night? He's arrested. Hands are laid on him. Swords are drawn. Peter cuts off an ear and runs. Right? He stabs and he runs. And not just him, but Mark. If you remember when we went through Mark, Mark, the young guy, right? He's just kind of hanging out in his pajamas with a cloak around him. They try to grab him and he spins out of his clothes and runs away naked. All of Jesus' friends and disciples, they scatter like marbles dropped on a tile floor. Why? Well, I don't want my reputation soiled. I don't want my safety to be stripped from me. Here, Jesus is the, the safest place, right next to Jesus, the safest place you could be. What Paul's saying from prison that's what he says in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate me from this. Not even death. It's certainly not a sword. No Roman can do that. And yet, not wanting to associate with their brothers in prison, the Christians are afraid. They're, they're in danger of shrinking back. And the apostle is saying, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. And furthermore, he's like, hey, you might think you might not have enough, but don't not love strangers. Don't, love, don't not love people that are like you. Continue to be hospitable. That word hospitable, we can be hospitable to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that word literally means to love strangers, to love aliens from other countries who think different, talk different, speak different, pray different, believe different. We're still called to show love to them. As we kind of sort of round out this last sphere and enter into the conclusion, I want to just ask you, how would your life be different if you truly trusted Jesus with your dining room table? How would it look different? You say, well, I just don't have enough time in my calendar. I just don't have enough food in my refrigerator. I just, I, I, I just don't know if I have enough to, to give and, and really to be associated with other people. I don't know if I had the time. I don't know if I have the resources. I don't know if I have the emotional bandwidth. I'll just be hurt again. I just, I just don't know if I have the, the bandwidth. I'll be overburdened once again. And the apostle says, hey, listen, don't, don't stop. Let brotherly love continue. And don't neglect love for strangers. What would your life look like? As I transition to the conclusion, I want to just uh, sort of in the realm of Gus Portokalos, if you know who that is. I'm going to talk about three Greek words. Three Greek words. Uh, the first one is, I'm going to try to say this, aphilagrios, which means not loving silver. It's in this text here. And there's an interesting word there. There's a, there's a root. This is a compound word, and it's love and silver 
with a negative attached to the front. And it means, it says, do not love silver. Then there's another one, and you know this word probably. It's Philadelphia or Philadelphia. And what does that word mean? It means love, Philadelphia, those who are common or from the same womb, brothers. And that's a Christian word, right? It's a very Christian word. But there's another one. It's philoxenia. And what does that word mean? It means to love strangers. All three words are mentioned in this passage today. And so I just want to connect all these things together as we land the plane and say this. As we look to Jesus as Christians, we're saying, I can trust him with everything. I, I, I cannot love money. I don't need money. It's just going to hurt me anyway. I can love Jesus. And I can love strangers, people that can hurt me, people that can take up too much time in my life, take too much food out of my refrigerator. I can love them too. And, and, and past that, I, I can also love my brothers. I can give them the household of faith. I can give them the, the, the lion's share of the portion of my life, of my dining room table, of my, of my checkbook. We can give those things away. Why? Because Jesus has promised to meet our needs. If you're in Christ, we can not love money, love strangers, and love the brothers with everything in us in obedience to him because Jesus has empowered us to do that. And as a closing thought, I want you to think of this. Think of this. Here's Jesus in heaven. There he is. He's on his throne. Everything he's ever needed, everything he's ever wanted, security, safety, significance, he's... He's the son of God. And the father says, I'm sending you to die and to redeem unto us a people. And I want you to leave the riches of heaven. I want you to condescend to the depths of poverty. And I want you to redeem the people. And Jesus says, I don't love silver. I love you. I don't love I don't love money, I don't love prestige, I don't love what the world can buy me or afford me, I love God and I'll obey you. I love the Father and he submits to the Father and he becomes obedient even to the point of death. And who does he do that for? He does that for strangers. Not just strangers, but he does that for his enemies, right? He loves his enemies and what do his enemies become? His enemies become his brothers. As we've already read in Hebrews, isn't that wonderful? Jesus, our Savior, didn't love silver, didn't love money. He even comes down to earth, and there he is. He's baptized by John the Baptist. We should be Baptists. No, I'm just kidding. He's baptized by John, and immediately after the baptism, he's ushered out into the wilderness, and there he's tempted by Satan. And what does Satan offer him? Safety. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give you everything you want, and you don't have to go to the cross. Oh, 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 you want money? You want the things that money can buy? I'll give you the whole kingdom. I'll give you all the gold and all the fortresses and all the titles and all the fame. It's all yours. Oh, you just want bread? You just want pleasures? I got that too. And what does Jesus say? No. No, no. He says, my meat, my satisfaction, my significance my safety does not come from you or these things. It comes from the Father, and it is his will that I'm going to do. And not only does he do that for us, but he gives us the power to do that. 
When we who are Christians who follow in Jesus' footsteps, we say, we're not gonna love money. We're not gonna let it take us off the path this way or that way. We're gonna trust in God. He's gonna, he's gonna meet all of our needs. And what about satisfaction? What about pleasure and joy and comforts? Well, we've been promised more than this world could ever offer. And even now, he's promised to satisfy us. And so we'll stay the course. And, and finally, that we would open up our tables. We can open up our tables. We can open up our lives to other people who may hurt us, who will hurt us. Why? How? Because Jesus has given us the ability to do that. And just as he has done that, we can do it. And so the main idea, living by faith, trusting in Jesus means trusting in the Lord's promise of security, significance, and satisfaction. And friends, it spills over from Sunday into Monday. Theology leads to practice. And let's do that this week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the sacrifice that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the provision that we can even pray to you in his name. We thank you for the promise that we have. We will stand as children of the promise. We'll fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because you have promised us that you will satisfy us. Pleasures forevermore, you promised. Safety. You said that nobody could hurt us if we stand with you. And you are standing with us. And God's significance. God, humble us, but raise us up. Give us confidence in the fact that we as your people bear your name as children of the promise. God, we love you and we pray that this church who believes in Jesus, who claims it's all about him, would be a people who demonstrate that with our lives, with our checkbooks, with our bedrooms, and God, with our dining room tables. We ask this in your name, amen.